Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. I am talking with Pinhas Shir, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. We've been talking about a course he contributed to called The Jewish Christ, First Century Diversity. Over the past couple weeks, he has helped to clarify who's who in the first century Jewish communities. We already covered some of the important historical events that contributed to the development of the primary Jewish philosophies that Josephus refers to. We discussed the Sadducees, who are focused on the temple and on the Torah, and yet were very politically connected, which creates quite an interesting dynamic within that group of people. We also talk about the Pharisees, who were concerned about purity in daily life. They valued the Torah, but also the writings of the prophets and oral traditions, and demonstrated quite a bit of diversity even amongst themselves. There was so much good information, so if you missed those episodes, go back and listen to them. You don't want to miss it. If you want to learn more about the various siblings of Judaism, like the Elephantine Judaism, Hellenistic Jews, and how they all compared to Jesus's interpretation of Judaism, you should register for the course. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it super easy to register. And don't forget to use the coupon code ISRAEL to be eligible for free material. This week, however, we get to talk about two more very interesting Jewish sects. One group completely removed themselves from society to wait for God to redeem them, and the other group actively resisted roaming control. But first, a quick reminder of where we get these groupings of Jewish philosophies from. You know, Josephus is writing to a Roman audience, trying to explain to them Israelite world, a Jewish world. And he says, well, Jews have four main philosophies. Right? So he talks about the Pharisees, he talks about the Sadducees, and then he also mentions the uh, Essenes. And then he does mention the Zealots in a kind of a roundabout way, but I don't really want to talk about them. Why? Because it's a sore issue. The zealots are the ones who stir up the people to war. So he's not very fond of the zealots. In fact, they get a really, really bad treatment in, in anything that he writes. But from that quote, you know, of Josephus is very famous, is where people focus on these four major movements. And, and it's a good way to talk about them. Why? Because these groups were significant and influential. And, and that's why we should, you know, think about them as being sort of, say, the main uh, core of the, this diversity that existed. So the Zealots and the Qumran Jews, they, they are two groups that are very, very different, actually. Very different ideologies, same, same foundations, same Judaism, right? right? But a very different way of looking at the Bible, looking at what God said, and focusing, again, on different priorities. 
In some ways, you can think of zealots and you can think of the Maccabees. What are zealots driven by? They're nationalists. They want Israel to be Israel. They don't want foreign involvement. They don't want pagans coming in and messing things up. They don't want foreign powers running Israel, essentially. So they're nationalists. They want Israel to be Israel and leave everybody, leave us alone. Let us be who we are, you know? And so that's what they wish more than anything. And they're willing to fight for it. And they're willing to go at great length, basically, to get what they want. Violence, yes. Gruesome, awful, terrible violence, absolutely. If that gets them to be, to be where they want to be, then that's good enough. So to them, that's the means that they choose. Now, you know, Essenes are completely different. They're, they're nonviolent. They, they don't want to, you know, they're not against violence. So to say they, they realize violence is a part of life, but that's not their way. Their way is to allow God to sort it all out. And so in that sense, they're not going to take up arms and start fighting. They're going to wait for redemption to come from another source. They're not yeah. going to be the source of their own deliverance. They wait for God to do that. So different ideology. Again, looking at uh, application <laughs> of these ideas is very, right. very different. And that's where they're going to differ in a major way. If we were to talk first about the Qumran sect or the Essenes, how do, how do we put those two terms together? And it, this is actually a much bigger question than we really have time for. I think you do this better in your course. But just yeah. to clarify the vocabulary that we're using, what is similar or different about those two terms? Sure. The, the whole Essene and Qumran question is a huge question. There's a lot of holes. There's a lot of we don't know. There's a lot of missing information. And so I actually right. took a lot of bits and pieces of information we have and put together a course where I look at it. So I have a course specifically on the Essenes. By the way, the course is called The Shadow of the Essenes in the New Testament, and Pinhas makes the deep dive into all of the different writings and all of these little details related to this group. As always, I'll put a link in the show notes. I will just say that the Essenes and Kumarnites, we tend to group them together and use those words pretty much almost interchangeably. I like to call them Qumranites, I like to call them Qumran Jews, but that is only referring to one particular group of Jews living in one particular location. The way I understand Essenes is a much broader movement. They're not focused on one particular geographical location. Qumran is a one area within right. the country of Israel, right? And, and Essenes are all over the place. So we have references to Essenes living in cities and the countryside and you know in Jerusalem, places like that. So we can't really call them Qumranites because they're not living in Qumran anymore. Right. So essentially you get the idea. And there's a diversity in that movement as well. But uh, we shouldn't confuse them. So I think, think of them as a, as a group within a group, per se. Right. That's the best that we can make sense of it. And honestly, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the scholars are still trying to debate and figure out a lot of things. There are working theories, there are scholarly theories where people are fighting out, sort of say, some early presuppositions that were made and now they're being set aside and we're re-examining right. these ideas in light of what we know. Again, and, and sometimes simply looking at the different group of texts and, and, and saying, why are, we, why are we supposing this has happened this way? Could it have happened another way? Could it could be there, and could there be another explanation for these things? Right. And so, a lot of these theories are being revised again with the greater study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the greater study of the Second Temple period, and all the other movements as well. We we're constantly revising the, the our understanding of the past. 
So the Essenes, the Qumranites, they're certainly their own cohesive group, but even within their group, there are groups within groups. And Qumran yeah. being simply a particular geographical group. And just to be clear, it's in the area of Qumran where some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found because they were found all the way through, like all the way even down to Masada. So we have lots of different locations where the scrolls were found, but Qumran seems to be this primary cache, this primary library. Yeah, there's like a, there's 11 caves. Uh, they're all in around about Qumran. But there are other locations, you know, like Nahal Fever and Masada and things like that, where other writings were found. We don't really right. call them scrolls, but we group them into a scrolls collection because they were found in that right. general region. Right. Some of them don't even come from a Jewish Jewish milieu. <laughs> so some of them don't have any anything to do with the settlements that, you know, yeah. uh, in Qumran, so to say. So it's a large geographical area that simply has given us a lot of ancient material because it was preserved well right. because of the dryness of the climate. We have some really, really ancient things that have survived. And it's just our fortune that we found them. And so with the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, not only do we have copies of scripture and commentary on scripture, but we have writings from the people who lived there at Qumran. So, right. you know, as opposed to, like we just said, the Sadducees don't have writings about themselves, but if we do have the Qumranites writing about themselves, what can we deduct from their own descriptions about themselves as to who they were or what their approach to scripture was? Yeah. So, uh, this is this is the major difference. Again, having a writing by a group about themselves. We actually have their their entire rule books. We have, I mean, they have a, a community rules, like a like a covenant of their community <laughs> described. This is what we do, this is how we do it, this is how we institute new members. And if they disobey and they fail, this is how we kick them out and there's yeah. this trial period. I mean, we have so much yeah. for, of their own life being described and their own ideology. And then we have their own liturgy, their own songs, their their worship texts that are absolutely amazing and sometimes baffling. You know, as we read them, it's a very different type of thinking, but it clearly is a Jewish spirituality just of a different variety. Here, we're in a sense uh, lucky. <laughs> we found a treasure trove of, of these documents that really preserve their own yeah. ideology in their own words, not somebody else talking about them. We have plenty of that too, but this is this is unique. So we actually know quite a bit about the Qumran sect uh, itself, about the Qumran Jews, what was important to them, what were their key ideas, and what were, what was their hope, what were they looking for, you know, what were their key texts, their favorite passages in the Bible kind of thing. So we, we know a lot more about them from, from their own mouths, so to say, than mm. in comparison to other movements uh, that we study from the same era. What did they think of other groups? Like, what did they think of the Sadducees? Say. Uh, well, the Qumran Jews could not stand Sadducees, <laughs> which is uh, the, the hypothesis. We don't know exactly how they got started as a group, but the hypothesis currently is, is this, this was a priestly group that basically left the precincts of the temple uh, and did not want to participate in the temple service anymore because they believed it to be corrupt. Uh, we call them Zadokite priests because they come from the, the dynasty of the great Sadok, and the, the priest at the, at the times of David. You know, so this is a long priestly family. Essentially, they protest, they leave, they settle in Qumran and said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to worship God the, the best way that we can here in this secluded place. 
and we're going to wait for God to take vengeance upon these unrighteous people who ruined everything. I mean, that, that, is a, that is their perspective. I mean, you can hear it in their writings. You can hear the disdain and the anger and the dissatisfaction, the criticism that they level at the uh, authorities who basically run the whole temple system. So they can't stand people in power. They can't stand Sadducees, which is why they left. They don't want to participate in the temple because it's all wrong. It's corrupt. They can't find a way to redeem, sort of say, the system by being a part of it. So they protested and they left. That's the best way that we can figure out how they ended up in Qumran. And so they create their own little society, their own little world, knowing all along that this is just a temporary measure. They just have to hold out until the redemption comes, until God takes vengeance upon these people, because eventually God is going to have enough. He may be kind and merciful and long-suffering, but eventually God's going to bring judgment. And when that judgment comes, that will be their day to return and to take over and to put things back the way they used to be. Right. <laughs> That's their perspective. <laughs> you know, that that is very simple per se, but but that is their hope. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're waiting for. Yeah. That's their their attitude yeah. towards the Sadducees. And frankly, didn't have much nicer things to say about Pharisees either. <laughs> In, in that way, it's kind of fun to read some of their writings. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like the Pharisees either. Uh, they had a different uh, sort of, say, bone to pick with uh, Pharisees because Pharisees weren't running the temple. So it's not like they ruined their life per se. But the Pharisees had their own uh, ideas that were deemed very progressive. And the Qumran Jews did not take those progressive ideas. They said, you know, you guys are a bunch of liberals. You're, you're taking it too far. Right. Pharisees, liberals. I know you don't think about it that way, but from a perspective <laughs> no. of Qumran Jews, they were. Depending on, well, I would say if you go to Israel and if you go to Qumran and if you watch the movie that they have, there's a very heavy, heavy suggestion that John mm. the Baptist was part of the Essene movement. Can you just can you just touch on like why are people making that connection there between John the Baptist and the Qumran? Jews? Uh, historically speaking, that is a perspective and opinion that came very early on uh, in the oh, study. Oh, is it? I thought that was kind of developed a lot later. Oh, no. It, it, almost from the beginning, the, the Qumranites were pegged as Jewish version of monks. They were like Jewish monks. And, and of course, John the Baptist is the ultimate monk, if you think about it this way. Again, looking from perspective of uh, Christianity that sort of say practices ascetic lifestyle, hermitism, things like that, self-denial right. to a very extreme way. You know, monks have lived in caves on nothing for ages, and they right. considered to be, that is the most spiritual expression to them. And so when they found Kumarnites in the middle of a desert living on nothing, they said, wow, Jews did that too, you know? Right. And so there's that correlation that existed. And of course, John the Baptist is always being connected with that. Why? Because he's walking around dressed in strange clothes and eating <laughs> crickets Bugs. or something like that. You know, that's how people look at it that way. You know, uh, it's, he has an ascetic lifestyle. And, and so people connect those ideas together and they say, okay, look, there's a lot of similarity and they lump them together. Mm -hmm. If you're going to study the message of John itself, like the way it is preserved in the gospels, what did he actually preach? What were his priorities? Mm -hmm. And you're going to study the Qumranites in their own words. You got to realize that their priorities don't really line up. And neither do their practices. How they live it out doesn't line up either. So while externally, they sort of have some of the similarities. They're located, they're, they're into the whole water thing. They're into going into the water. You know, Kumarnites um, 
took uh, mikvah, a ritual immersion daily, actually multiple times a day. Yeah. You know, and what does John preach? Baptism, right? (laughs) Only he wants it done once and that's it. Not daily, not multiple times a day, once and that's it. Yeah. And so what it symbolizes to him, by the way, is completely different than what it symbolizes to them. So while the ritual is the same, the meaning is not. And that's why I say, wait a minute, if you're going to draw parallels just on the external appearance, then we have a lot of connections. But if you're going to go deeper and actually look at what things mean, then we have an absolute disconnect. And that's what I challenge people on. So very early on, there's this theory that existed and it became popular and it became the status quo. And once something becomes the status quo and people repeat it enough times, everybody believes it. That's right. Without really looking deeper into it. I mean, look, at some point where everybody believes that the earth was flat, right? Till one guy came out and started challenging people on that and in the end lost his life, right? Right. These is, this is how these ideas sometimes are, are born and people hold on to them. Why? Because that's something that they're comfortable with accepting or believing. And I, I don't believe that there's connection between Qumran and, and John, uh, the baptizer himself per se. You know, yeah. Similarities, yeah. But ideological connections, I don't see. So if people want to explore that more, I think you go into that in a little bit more depth. Yeah, I give, I, you know, I, I pointed out, you know, a lot of times, you know, here we're just talking big ideas, right? We right, kind of right. throw out these general ideas out and, and kind of hang it out there in the, in the outer space. Right, right. Um, in the courses, one of the differences that we do is I actually show you things. So I say, look at this text, look at this text, look at this, look That's at right. that. And it's sometimes one of the best ways to learn is compare contrast. Okay? Yeah, so That helpful. is how our mind works. And this is how our logic sort of say, make sense of the information. So when you lay things out and you say, okay, let's compare a contrast, all of a sudden things don't line up. And 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 I do a lot a lot of that in my courses where, you know, here we're just having a conversation. And over there I have a chance to show you texts and 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 superimpose ideas next to each other and 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 demonstrate it in a much more visual way. Where here we're just you know having a good time discussing it. Right. <laughs> okay, so let's get to our fourth philosophy, the one that Josephus really hates has a bone to pick with them due to them, their part in the great revolt that happened. So let's just ask the same question. If we were to run into a zealot, where are we most likely to find a zealot community or people who would align themselves with zealot ideologies? Well, you're going to find, again, zealots are a a movement that's all over the place. You're going to find them everywhere. Mm. Um, You will find them particularly in Galilee because they don't like the authorities too much. And most of the time they will be fighting the authorities. A good place to hide is Galilee. Why? Because there's no centralized authority there. They run to the hills and they hide and they have plenty of places to conceal themselves. Let's put it that way. And they enjoy the support of the general population, much more so in Galilee that they would enjoy the support of the elites and the connected people in the city, like a big metropolitan area like Jerusalem, they will find less support. Why? Because people have a way of maintaining their life. They have connections. They have a certain amount of power. They have deals going between each other that are all connected to this whole system, okay, Hmm. where they're fighting the system. So they're going to find support more along the farmers and the peasants and the fishermen and people people like who who do not depend on that system in such a same way. And maybe even the people who feel the taxation laws of Rome most adamantly, right? I mean, it's, you know, if you're, yep. if you cap 
10 fish and then you have to give eight of them to Rome, you feel the pain of what that taxation is like, which would be really easy to agree with the zealot who's like, stop paying taxes. Sure. It'd be very easy to capitalize on that anger. So essentially that is where people, um, you know, this is where zealots find their supporters. They, they, they rally people to their cause and actually create many uprisings all throughout the history of Israel. We have zealots rising up and basically leading people in this very messianic, charismatic type of way uh, on these little mini revolts. And then, and of mm-hmm. course, they're crushed most of the time. And some of them kind of linger because they go into hiding and regroup and do it again. So it's an ideological movement, a movement of resistance, a resistance to the status quo and how things are, because some elites have accepted this way of life and they find it to be workable for them. Uh, These people are idealists. They're nationalists. They don't want to settle for how things are. They want to restore them to the former ways or make them better and improve Hmm. them and change them. And so that's where their ideology rotates about. And they're willing to go to extreme lengths, basically, of violence to to get their goals accomplished. Hmm. And so knowing that we can't so easily separate the nationalistic movement from any kind of religious views, those are all very tightly intertwined sure. here. But what do we know? Do we know anything really about the zealots? Like what did they think about purity or the temple? Or we see them adamant about God as king, not Caesar. That mm-hmm. seems political. It's also religious. But right. are there it other is. kind of religious ideologies we know about the zealots? The best that the scholars can make sense of uh, zealots is that they, out of all the movements that are out there, if you're going to make them similar to somebody else, they probably line up much more with Pharisees than anybody else. Hmm. That doesn't mean they're Pharisaic, but a zealot could probably do well in a synagogue that's ran by a Pharisee. Let's put it that way. So Hmm. if you have Pharisees teaching in some Galilean synagogue, a zealot could easily sit under their teaching and, and sort of say worship in that environment and not feel bad or ostracized in any kind of way because it's, it, most of that would be shared by them. They, they may not care for the purity aspect that the Pharisees will bring into it, but everything else they, they would be okay with. So uh, where they will not be okay with some of the seeing Kumarnite ideas per se, because again, the things that are important to them are not the same. And they would be much more zealous or uh, ardent about getting back and, you know, where Kumarnites can be seen more passive, like pacifists, kind of let God work it out. You know, we're zealots like, no, we're going to work it out. God has given us the ability to fight and we're going to take it back. So uh, I think they would find themselves more comfortable in a synagogue ran by Pharisees, basically, than, than in any other religious setting, per se. And they wouldn't have a problem with the temple. They would still come to worship at the temple. Although there are things that they would not like at the temple and they would be in great danger because if anybody recognizes them, they could quickly be arrested. Why? Because this is where the centralized power is. This is where the guards are. This is where people armed to the teeth are. Militia, they can be seized, caught, jailed, tried and executed in a matter of very quick time, which again, to them would be dangerous, which is why they would not show up in Jerusalem unless there's large amount of crowds like during the holidays. 
And mm. that, again, again, they can hide a lot easier uh, among the populace because they're not like anybody else. They're not elites. They're not anything special. They're just average Jews who care about these things. And, and that is their ideological bent. But you will find them everywhere. So like we talked about nationalism and religion and political things, it's all mixed in together. Right. And people do not separate those things. Right. So imagine a synagogue. And within that synagogue, you have a diversity of opinions on these matters. And I could see zealots very easily fitting into that diversity mm. and sitting in that same synagogue and praying the same exact prayers and reading from the same exact scriptures and really going along with that. People often match the Sicarii with the zealots. Are they one in the same or is the Sicarii an even more extreme version of the zealots? Yeah, I think I think I think you're right. Uh, exactly how you say, how you put it. I think the Sicarii are the, the more extreme uh, wing of the zealot movement. Well, most of the zealots certainly affirmed these ideas of, you know, we have we have no king but our God and Caesar is not our king and things like that. And so political overthrow of the ruling classes and Rome and things like that, uh, the Sicarii took it to a whole new level. They were the assassins. They were the ones who would go and actually sacrifice their own lives for the sake of the cause where most of the zealots will do all sorts of subversive work and they would rise up and rally other people up. Uh, the Sicarii, I think from what we know, and again, we know very little because we have just a few references about them. Uh, they were more of the, specifically the assassins within the group who would go and in a situation where pretty much they're doomed, they know that if they do what they must do, they're dead. They're going to get caught and they're going to be dead. They don't care. The, the good of the mission is more important, so to say, than their own lives. And so Josephus talks about them quite a bit. He, he, he talks about zealots not valuing their lives or the lives of their family or their, or their kin or anybody else. And they basically say, you can't fight people who have no fear of losing their life, which to Romans was kind of like, okay, how do we fight that? Right. You can't. I mean, you really can't. It's a, it's a lose situation because while most people are afraid to lose their lives and these are not. Their goal, their mm. political goal, their you know their their aspiration is way way more important than than their own lives, the lives of their families. They're not afraid of torture. They're not afraid of death. So mm. they win in that sense. It is so interesting to just spend time talking about even just four of these Jewish groups that existed towards the latter part of the Second Temple period. Where do these groups go? You know, you sort of touched on it just a little bit, but what happens to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Qumran sect and the Zealots? Are they still in existence today? Where would we see the effects of their philosophies or have they just disappeared? Yeah, I think I've already addressed this just a little bit when I talked about like, you know, a lot of times people right. have this kind of a simplistic notion that the, the Pharisees became the rabbis. Like, you know, we, right. we, we meet the rabbis in second century and also those are the Pharisees. They're just, just called by a different name, basically. No, it's not exactly the same. The rabbinic movement arose over a period of time as well. And it's really is a composite movement from all these different groups, essentially. So imagine that, you know, Essenes is also a diverse group. I already mentioned that not right. all Essenes live in Qumran. Not all of them practiced the same type of purity. Some chose to be single, other chose to be married and have children. And so we, we can't lump them in the same group. Uh, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of Essenes out there kind of mingling in the whole New Testament writings, actually. So again, there are more mainstream, more extreme groups uh, out there. And so as history develops, you know, as we look at the Jewish history and the calamities that befall Jerusalem and so on and so forth, all the Jewish wars, they take quite a destruction uh, mm -hmm 
to the whole society. And as that happens, people go into survival mode. Why? Because Jews are being wiped out by millions, okay? Millions. And enough being uh, shackled and taken into slavery all throughout the diaspora. Jews become slaves all over the entire Roman world, okay? And so enough of just killing people and having the blood run down the streets. Now that survival is so important that, again, whatever remnants of these groups exist, they band together and they form, they try to form a new way to survive. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what we see uh, in history. So it's not that they they do go away because they lose their place in the world, okay? Sadducees go away because the temple was destroyed. There's, they can't form their spirituality about something that does no longer exists. Would they like to restore the temple? Yes. Zealots will be the first ones to say, let's do it, right? But they also get wiped out. Why? Because they're the instigators who cause all these wars, and they're the ones who are going to be arrested and executed first. So imagine that. Pharisees do have their influence on the people, and so their ideology continues to exist and dominate for for quite a bit of the time. But then it's consolidated with all these other spiritual Mm -hmm. movements that exist and other Jews who don't quite see eye to eye with Pharisees. So essentially, there's this consolidation of these movements. And just as they rise up and have their distinctiveness, and the destruction comes, and something new rises as, as the new beginning, so to say, a new way of moving forward. And that's kind of what we have in rabbinic Judaism of the later centuries, is this consolidation of ideas. And if you study any of the rabbinic writings, you'll find out how incredibly diverse they are even within their own. There's, you know, the rabbi said, so-and-so says this. If Rabbinic literature can be summed up in such a simple way. Rabbi, so-and-so said this. Another rabbi argued with him. The third rabbi came in and says, both of you are wrong. It's not like that at all. And gave him another opinion. You know, and, and in the end, they all said, well, that's very nice. We're glad to hear your opinions. And everyone didn't necessarily come to a common denominator. Uh, that if that's that's rabbinic literature, why it's like that? Because all these different groups are being consolidated and they're being allowed to have their voice. Yeah. Rather than forming their own independent camps and saying, you're out, yeah. they're saying, we're all in this together. Let's create something that allows for that diversity to coexist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we have kind of moving later in history into the age of the, of the rabbis, essentially. Yeah. It's so we started the conversation just with the idea that Second Temple Judaism's plural, are Mm -hmm. different than Israelite belief that we see in the Hebrew Bible, of which I would say goes through its own transformation throughout the Hebrew Mm -hmm. Bible. But then it's good to kind of go, and then second, all the Second Temple Judaisms that we have morph again on the other side of the destruction of the temple. And and just it's good to be reminded that we need to get away from the habit of trying to make everything clean and simple and monolithic throughout all of time. We need to yeah, give it space a, to kind of morph It's a and tendency change. to pigeonhole. And I think that is our biggest downfall. We create these neat categories and we try to fit things into these neat categories. So I think it's a really a preoccupation of Western mind, the whole, the whole post-enlightenment type thinking hmm. where we, we just pigeonhole things. And, and it's, a, it's unfortunate because I think it's not the most constructive way to analyze history and antiquity and ancient texts. And this is where we fall into a trap, essentially. We, we make the trap and then we fall into that trap. It's sad, but, the, but my call in my courses a lot of times is appreciate the diversity, understand the diversity, and allow that information to inform your reading of these ancient texts. And don't be afraid to stray outside of uh, New Testament and read some Josephus or read the Maccabees right. and things like that. And, and just, you know, see the wealth of information that's out there that helps you really to become a better interpreter of the Bible. 
I mean, that's really what I want people to have is the ability to read those words that they treasure and, but to read them better, to read them in a more informed way, uh, which is what these courses really do. There is still so much to learn. Thank you, Pinhashir, for taking the time to talk about these four primary Jewish philosophies. But does anyone else feel the need to push now into the age of the rabbis? Maybe we will just cover this in a future podcast episode. But first, since we've been talking about Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and now Zealots, you really should go and read the list of disciples who followed Jesus. So one of the lists is in Matthew 10, 1 through 4. Only after knowing about the diversity in the first century does this list become so astonishing. It's almost like we begin to see these followers as real people who have tried and true frameworks for understanding how God works in the world. And then they come into contact with each other as they follow the same teacher. How amazing, contentious, and educational the walks must have been from one city to another. Did Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot get along? Did they even see each other's point of view? Think, too, about how these land-oriented, regular, everyday people following Jesus felt in the presence of the Sadducees. Were they in awe, intimidated by their knowledge of the Torah? Let me know what you think. Send me a note on Facebook at Israel Bible Center or Twitter at Israel Study. Thank you for joining us this week in the Israel Bible Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it if you're listening on a podcast platform like Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or Google Podcasts. Each rating helps other people find this podcast, and I'd be so grateful if you could pass the word around. If you like what you hear in this podcast, sign up for this course or just explore your way around Israel Bible Center's flagship certificate program on Jewish context and culture. Or follow the link in the episode notes to find out how you can get this and many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code Israel when you register to receive free surprise. Who doesn't like free surprises? Thank you, Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to our conversation next week.